0: Hi, this is Jim Lesser from BBDO San Francisco, and welcome to another episode of the Fog City Chronicles. Today's interview is part of a series called The Women Who Run BBDO. Female leadership is such an important topic in our industry right now. And at BBDO, I've been very lucky to work with uh, some of the most dynamic leaders in our industry who happen to be women who are running offices and groups of offices. And I thought that if we could uh, pull their collective knowledge together, it might help to inspire the uh, female leaders of tomorrow. Today's interview is with Anne Dooley. Anne is the global business leader uh, for BBDO on SC Johnson, one of our largest global accounts. And Anne is based in Chicago, but she leads a team that's wrapped around the world and has some fascinating insights about Um, some of the challenges that you face when you're trying to lead a team that's not located in one place. Um, Anne also has a unique perspective that she spent a significant amount of time on the client side, in her case on craft. And so she really understands um, the the client's point of view about what growth looks like and what the business challenges are that they're facing. Um, And I think that's why she's um, had such a long and successful career. So Without further ado, Ann I'm so excited to be here talking to you today, and I can't tell you how long I've been um, anticipating having a conversation about, about mentoring and advertising and leadership with you. Um, and so I just want to start by asking you kind of generally, how did you get into advertising? Um you know, are there things when you look back on your school years, or your childhood, where there were hints that you were kind of interested in this industry or was it a discovery process, you know, as you got out of out of school and just began looking for for the career? How did it, how did it begin for you?
1: Well, I think I'm a a not um, unusual case in that I went off to a liberal arts education in a small school and um I learned how to learn. I studied art history, I studied economics, I studied political science, and uh, about my senior year I realized I wasn't going to be going to law school, um, which had always been my plan. My father had recently remarried and instead of having three children he had six, so he had told me that if I wanted to go to law school I needed to save some money first, so I interviewed with every company that came on campus. I mean, P and G sales, insurance companies, banks, Anderson Consulting, and um, I got really good at it. And I think I, after twenty interviews, got seventeen offers. And what became wow. clear to me was I wasn't excited about any of them. But I became very good at researching what certain entry level jobs were looking for, and it was clear to me that a lot of what they were looking for I could do, but didn't love. Hmm. So I happened to meet a man named Blair Vetter, who was the CEO of uh, Needham and Harper and Steers, um, sailing that summer. And at the end of the day, he came up to me as I was getting off his boat and said, you are a natural for this business. And through the process of meeting him, I met another person um, from Leo Burnett. Um, and I interviewed with both companies. And the minute I did the interviewing, I felt like this is a place that values what I love. Learning how to learn, solving a problem, Mm. communicating, organizing people. Um, And I never knew that those were skills people were looking for, right? (laughs) So um, I decided to take the job. I had an offer for roughly a third more at Anderson Consulting. And, um, you know, I, I did it despite my father's profound reservations. One of the reasons my father had reservations is my uncle was an advertising executive uh, in New York, and my father thought his career was so ridiculous hmm. um, that he his, his concern was I was going to do something with my life that had no redeeming social value. Mm. But I was convinced that it felt like something I'd be good at, and frankly, I was excited about. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's how.
0: Um, Wow, what a great introduction. There's there's so many things in there that I will... That, um, it's a little
1: lengthy, I know. No, that's
0: because <laughs> one of the things that I... Um, one of the, the reasons that I love the, the format of a podcast yeah. and that I've become obsessed with podcasts in general is that in conversation, you don't always know where things are going to go. And so you can kind of dig into things yep. more deeply. And obviously with the longer format, you have time to do that. And um, you know, as this project started to pick up a little bit of momentum, what I realized is we just live at this incredible time right now where people can get the information they want when they want it. And you know, experiences from people like you have the power to connect with so many more people than before. In the past, you would have had to connect one-on-one with someone to mentor them, and now you can mentor many, many people. Through one conversation, right. so so just in your first um, in your first answer there, there's so many things I want to ask you about, um, and the first one is the idea of of how many interviews you did and how many offers you got. Not the not the the percentage of wins right. versus losses or something, but more the idea of getting reps, yeah, and the importance in any business of having the repetition to get better at something.
1: It it was incredible, and I. I still tell every person who calls me about a job interview, interview for five before you go in for the one you really want. Hmm. But also learn how to break down what they're really looking for. Do your homework on the company, their investment strategy, you know, what their different career paths are. And that's what we do in our business, right? When we're going in to do a new business pitch we try to do our homework beyond what they tell us in the briefing. We try to kind of get the whole picture and, um, and then you try to have some informal interactions along the way so that you're really ready when you're, it's showtime, but some prepping. So you're right. It's all about the prep. I literally, because I was so painfully shy Jim in those days, I mean, painfully shy. Um, I would literally stand in front of a mirror, and practice what I was going to say before I went into the interviews. By the 10th or 11th, it had gotten pretty easy. Wow. You know, I knew how to I knew how to figure out what they'd want in the right. first five minutes. How did you do that? How did you figure it out? Very self-motivated. I went to the Career Center. Um, they were delighted that somebody came. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days, a lot of people weren't very career-focused. Um, so to have somebody come in and ask how to get ready for an interview and— Resource what resources are available, and to see how task oriented I was, and um, you know, I I just said to myself, I have to do this. I have no choice. I'm graduating. I'm going to get a card for graduation, um, and I need to be employed, mm-hmm. and I want to be employed in something that I'm excited about, or as excited about as I am about law school later on. Mm-hmm. So it it I just approached it as a job
0: and just dig in and do the homework. Dig,
1: I did a lot of homework. People thought it was nuts, <laughs> but it was good.
0: That's great. Okay, and then the, so, so just building on that for a second on the interview yeah. process, now that you do as many interviews as you yeah. do to recruit people and building teams all over the world, um, do, do you still, call, you know, sort of harken back to those early interviews and think, wow, this person might be doing something that, you know, is a, an easy thing to fix and um, I just wonder if, if you have any techniques for interviewing now that you're the interviewer, that you share with people, that you try to help them to learn as they go, or do you have any favorite questions that you ask that help you sort of suss out whether someone has done their homework?
1: Um, I do two things in interviews that are maybe a little bit different. I mean, by the time I interview somebody, they've probably seen four they've or run five the people. and the team has given me a thumbs up or a thumbs down in their assessment. So I try to do two things. Um, One, I try to give them a sense of our vision for this business, and it's important within BBDO, within the Omnicom network, where there are going to be places where we want to be transformational, and they could be a part of a transformation. So I try to paint a picture that is, this isn't any account. This is an account where we have a mission and a vision and a team challenge. And you can be a part of that. You can be a part of the BBDO Worldwide Network. Here's what that involves, BBDO University. You could be a part of this. So I try to give them a sense of all that's possible. And then I really try to glean whether they have the character Mm. uh, to lead under the circumstances that we find ourselves. Because at that level, I'm really assessing not just fit for the job, but fit for our culture, fit for the global network, fit for the client's global network. Right. So I try to ask questions that'll help me determine resiliency, how people would go about learning about a different market, um, how people approach becoming educated on a topic, how people deal with clients that are extremely different kinds of people. Um, and, and you know those are the things I really probe now.
0: Mm. Um, it's interesting. You're touching on something that when um, I spoke with Scylla, she kind of had a similar point of view on <clears throat> the interview process. That that by the time someone gets to you, you're kind of both buying and selling, if you will. That's exactly it. You're 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 presenting the vision, as you said, and then you're also sussing out whether or not they're they're right for that vision. Um,
1: Listen, and I feel too. You know, how many times do you interview somebody? And they're not right for that job. But two months later, you hear somebody else in another BBDO office or in another account or in another Omnicom agency is looking for somebody. What I try to make sure is when somebody leaves our office, they want to work for BBDO and Omnicom, even if they're not right for that job, because they won't have gotten to me if they're not pretty damn good. Um, And a lot of times, we end up going back to those people at another point in time. So,
0: that's a great point because the, often you can meet someone and think this is a brilliant person. They're not this role.
1: They're not cast for this client. Right. But man on a client like this, they'd be right. awesome, right? right. Exactly. And it could be
0: 2 days later or 2 years later that a different opportunity presents itself.
1: Same thing happens when I interview, you know, strategists and planners. You know, I look at somebody and go, "God, that's a brilliant analytic mind." But they're not a natural born storyteller. Mm-hmm. I need a storyteller on this business right, right now, right? But later on, you come back and you go, "Oh, we need somebody who will be deeply in the analytics and is not going to be intimidated by omni."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I need that. Right. So,
0: right. so it's it becomes a question of kind of your read on their their EQ as much as their IQ, and that's really and, well said. Yeah. And what they what they can bring to the to the exactly. team. Exactly. Um, Okay, just circling back for a second to that first um, uh, answer that, that you were talking about as you came out of school, that you had a, another offer in consulting that was for more money. And it's something that I think in my career, m- mentors have told me often is, is follow your heart, follow the work. And I'm just curious what early on, what made you say, I'm not going to take significantly more money to go do something different?
1: I was offered this job with Anderson Consulting maybe two years after it had been formed. There were no women in the interview process. The whole focus of the interview process was about breaking down problems and analytic problem solving. Um, a lot of discussion about how, you know, they, they trained me on computer skills. Nowhere in the conversation was the EQ piece or the curiosity about what makes businesses run focused. In those days, they were so focused on the analytic side of the people because of where Anderson was coming from, right, mm-hmm. a financial background. And in those days, I was not as confident about my analytic skills. I kind of equated, if you, you know, if you're not a genius at math, you don't have great analytic skills. I've learned that that's very different. So I really felt this is a job that I can do, but it's not going to play to my strengths. And it's certainly not going to excite me every day the way that this other job opportunity presented itself. BBDO um, is great, but in those days, Leo Burnett, which is where I started, had one of the world's most famous client service training programs. And that notion of being in a training program with people from other liberal arts and business schools really appealed to me, and you could choose... Do I start as a research analyst or a media buyer planner? Because their feeling was no kid right out of school should go up against an MBA from Harvard. Hmm. You needed to be a subject matter expert before they let you loose on a, a senior client. So that appealed to me, too, that I would I would learn some piece of the business really well from the ground up. I chose media. And Denise Paul, um, who would also started at Leo Burnett, did the, um, the research side of things.
0: That's fantastic. And um so so digging in on that period for just a second, yeah. I learned that you and Tony's both were part of kind of a pioneering group of women at right. Leo Burnett at the time. Yeah. So could you just talk about what that what that experience was like <clears throat> to be some of the the first women in their training program?
1: So women had only been in the training program for a few years when Tonice and I got in. And I I think If you really think about it, this notion of women in um, professionally um, developed roles was really just emerging. Women having careers, I guess I should say. Women having jobs, that was nothing new. But women having careers um, was a newer idea in those days, lifetime careers. And I think there's a little bit of a mindset at Leo Burnett for many years that this was the most exclusive training program in the world. Now, remember, they were Midwestern. And parochial, but they were convinced that that's what it was, and um, so if you only had forty jobs to give, and you were getting four thousand applications a year from schools like Harvard and Dartmouth, and wow. you know you wanted to make sure that somebody who took one of those spots was going to have a family to support, right? And there wasn't really an expectation in those days of women working all of their lives in a career. So I think even though they were interviewing women for a long time, they only started hiring, you know, 5%, 10%, 15% of them um, in the years that, you know, we we joined and subsequently after because they began to see how talented women hired in this program were. And the Renetta McCanns and some of the people who've been kind of industry legends um, were in that time that Denise and I were there. Many of them, though chose not to go into account management. Hmm. Many of them chose to stay in the research department or to stay in the media and planning department because I think what intimidated many people was account management was always on and always on a plane. Mm. So that was the environment. And then when I became pregnant with my first child, um, I was only the third woman in account management to have a baby and come back.
0: Wow, to have a baby and come back.
1: Come back, in That's account management. Yeah.
0: woman at Leo Burnett yeah. at that time. That's
1: yeah. remarkable. One was Linda Wolf, who ended up being president of the company. She was two years ahead of me. And um, and then there was a creative person, Maria Paleo-Lazar, mm. um, who's gone on to have quite a nice little creative career. But, um, no, I mean, it was unusual. Unusual enough that the CEO came to see me and tell me that we had a big meeting coming up with P- P&G and g And the board had talked about it, and, um, you know, his wife got a little irritable towards the end of the pregnancy, and a lot of the guys recalled, and, did I really feel up to being in this meeting? Wow. And um, did I think I was going to make the client uncomfortable, because I was going to be so pregnant?
0: Wow. And this is your your seven, eight months pregnant or something like that? I
1: was probably three weeks before my due date, and 24 years old never seen the CEO of the company before. Wow.
0: And so how... That that must have been... Um, it must have made you feel pretty unwelcome.
1: I actually felt frightened. Hmm. I was the primary breadwinner. My husband was in law school. I needed this job. I needed the promotion. I knew I was doing the work of an account supervisor even though I was only an account executive. Mm-hmm. And I... W- I felt I must be showing weakness. You know, I have to double down. Um, so it made me more determined, Jim, because I I wanted that job. And I, I had prepared us so well for that meeting. It was a meeting that led to a huge shift in strategy on cheer um, and into away from cleaning and into their fabric care positioning. Hmm. And I'd done all the strategic planning to get us there. And I wanted to be in the room because I knew that the clients were going to be impressed. Hmm. So, no, I... I was more gobsmacked. And the only thing I could think about was, I I think he's telling me to go home now. And so I said, well, what do you recommend? And he said, well, you know, you can go home anytime now um, and start your maternity leave. And I said, well, Mr. Adams, I'm going to get six weeks of paid leave. Are you telling me you're going to pay me for longer than that? And he got up and ran out of my office as quickly (laughs) as he could. Because I don't think that even thought about those things, right? In those days.
0: It just wasn't part of the conversation. No.
1: So I had my baby. I had a C section. I came back after six weeks. Wow. And I went to Cincinnati for a week. Because, Immediately. Because the, it was budget meetings. That's what we did.
0: Wow. Do you remember that, the actual meeting that you were talking about, yeah. the change in strategy meeting? Yeah. And what being up in the front of the room presenting was like?
1: Well, first of all, I was very junior, but I was the gal on the account. And it was cheer, detergent. And um, we were talking about the fact that all-temperature cheer was no longer relevant positioning because people didn't wash in all temperatures the way they had when the campaign had started. People weren't doing as much washing Hmm. in hot. And that more and more clothes were being worn not to blue-collar jobs, but to white-collar jobs. And they required warm and cold. And so... We could reposition Cheer as a brand that was more about fabric care and clothing care and let Tide stand for deep cleaning. And there was a lot of pushback in the room. And I was prepared for it. And I asked each man around the room, I said, what is the fabric content on your shirt and what are the washing instructions? Because I knew not a one of them had ever done their own laundry. And so I was prepared. And that that was was the the moment. What was their reaction? They bought the strategy hook, line, and sinker. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, in those days, perhaps, you know, account people were the business strategist, particularly on P&G, but you were also the planner, right? Um, and I really loved that part of the business, and I wanted to be in the room to do that planning with the clients. Right.
0: But that's a great segue to a question I really wanted to ask you about, which is the idea of being an account person or, you know, in certain parts of the world, they call it the suit or mm-hmm. the account leader Um How has that role, how have you seen that role change or evolve over your career with, you know, the introduction of things like the planning department, the, you know, there, there used to be a research department that was different from what today's planning department was like, how, how, what was your notion early on of what a great account person did versus today? What does a great account person do?
1: Right. Um, I. Always felt being on PNG where we we didn't even have computers when I started. We were doing things on, you know, graph paper and doing tertile and analyses and linear regressions. And we had to prepare for this annual planning process called the budget analysis. And you would go in and present to whoever was the CMO, you know, with your brand manager, all of the executives from your company and their company, and you might have 240 acetates that you would put up distribution on this form in this region, Um, you know, way before we got to the media side um, or the creative side of things, we went through the business fundamentals. And it became very clear to me early on that in helping my clients prepare for those parts of the meeting and know those answers, I was more credible on the topics where I was leading the conversation. Um, And maybe that was the first piece of reinforcement I had that those analytic skills that Anderson had seen when they interviewed me were important. I tended to like the creative analysis side and the comms analysis side and the human insight side better, but I was good at the business side. Um, So I always played to knowing the business. I always prepared for meetings with people at P&G by first updating myself on how's their business doing you know, what are they putting into their weekly share report? What are they doing? I then went to the client for four years, um, and I was director of strategy and business development for one of the divisions at Craft. And I became um, very aware of how much data and analytic um, discussion went on in meetings all day, every day, and what a little part of their day our business was. And so I realized that to stay relevant and i was spending two to three million dollars a year hiring consultants and uh, anderson's of the world anderson's of the world um and i would see how much money was being spent on the consultants versus j walter thompson leo burnett footcon and belding who were also calling on me Um, and i realized it was because they had a picture of the whole value chain at the client and their business problems whereas we were just we agency people were coming in. So it reinforced for me that really understanding the client's business problems, less from a knowing what the distribution on the push button form of spray cheese is, but more from a what's happening in the grocery segment and people are eating healthier and what does that mean for them and how does their innovation pipeline feed into that and why can't they innovate this because of the cost of innovation and change parts. And i I felt very early on that the more I understood the client's business problems, Mm -hmm. the more successful I could be. When I came back to the agency side, um, that's really was my focus for the agency and new business, was doing the briefing of, here's a client in this sector, you know, Allied DeMec, later Jim Beam, you know, what do we know about that sector, the pressures that they're facing? And um, putting my ex-client hat on and speaking to clients in that way. Um, really helps. So I think to me today, you're not the account leader, you're the business leader. And you're responsible for the business of growing the client's business and the business of growing your business. And your job is to find a place where the two come together. Hmm. And if you can't find convergence between what the client thinks success is and what we think success is, um, then you have to say, is there somebody else in our portfolio that'll fit? Because maybe our business solutions um, and what's good for us are not going to solve the client's business problem. So is there somebody else in our Omnicom toolkit or the BBDO network that can do that?
0: Um, there's so many interesting things in that about um, the way that I think even going back to your the, the training program and your initial kind of deep dive into the the business side of things that now obviously influences the way that you've run training <coughs> programs yourself and 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 built global clients. Um, are there any things that you now ask of your young account people that are the look if you're not doing A, B, and C, yeah. you're just missing, you're, you're missing, you know, the the obvious stuff?
1: What I say to my team is you need to be somebody's first call in the morning or last call at night because in those calls they will tell you about their good day or their bad day or their fears or their hopes they'll tell you about their distribution challenges in Guatemala and they'll tell you that they don't know how to address the dengue and Zika epidemic with what's in their toolkit Um, and by doing that every day, you're going to build up a level of understanding of how you can best help your client and where to focus from a business perspective. So I really feel that if, if I've got somebody who's dealing with a, an MBA from the University of Chicago or an MBA from Kellogg and many of our clients here in Chicago, and I'm dealing with a really bright, young you know, a liberal arts major, then they've learned how to learn. And what I've got to do is teach them how to f- get the clues to learn what they need to learn about to help that client. Mm. Um, I also ask them to really, really be mindful about what reports we do have access to, to talk about it, to think about it. But to me, it starts with, who is that person? What are their KPIs? How do they get remunerated? Mm. What did their last evaluation say? They were good at or not good at where could you do something that would help them improve that evaluation, right? Um, because in helping clients succeed, that's, I mean, that's how I've built my career, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, being in new business pitches and having somebody come up to you and say, Ann, do you remember me? You know, I was the ABM on, you know, X and Y at P&G, and you helped me in this budget meeting. Oh, what do you do now? I'm the CMO. Oh, great. That's going to help. <laughs> so, you know, I think... I say, you know, big oaks from little acorns grow. These ABMs, <laughs> these brand managers, right? right? They're the key to your success. Hmm. And frankly, often the key to my success still these days, Jim, yeah. because when my team comes in and says, I have this discussion with this ABM or this brand manager, I may get more granular insight into a problem than I'm going to get at the VP level or mm-hmm. the CMO level mm-hmm. of what our teams and the markets can do.
0: Right. So speaking of teams um obviously you know advertising is is such a team oriented industry and so i'm i'm wondering just as you go as you built your career how you how conscious were you of going from being a person on the team to being the person who put the team together and you know was there a moment there where i don't know the switch flipped or or where you just had a different level of awareness that this was now part of your job was, was, you know, being the captain of the team or whatever you want to call it. Um, and and how did you make that transition? Because I think there's a lot of people who go, you know, in our business, you go from being a craftsperson to being yeah. a leader. And those are very different roles.
1: Yeah. Well, I will tell you, um, there are probably three, things that had contributed to me realizing how fundamentally important teams were and how fundamentally important building Team Esprit Decor was. One, the team I was part of early in my career at Leo Burnett was a group of guys, and they were ex-domers or Dartmouth, and they they had constructs to understand teaming and the role you played on a team that, as a person who hadn't played competitive sports I didn't have, but I very quickly observed the same thing was happening at PG that high functioning teams had some shared construct, whether it was sports analogies mm-hmm. or it, whatever, right? Um, but I hadn't perhaps had my own experience of being on a team, right? Um, secondly, I got some feedback um, from a variety of sources that I was being too tough on people, that I was holding people to my standards um, and judging people through the lens of are they doing it the way I would and it was it was demotivating to people and it was intimidating to people and I didn't want to be that the last thing I wanted to be that was that so I started to do some soul searching about how to be more motivating and how to be more inspiring um, so that was really for me a shift I've, I'm judging people they're intimidated by me I have to actually make them feel safer to take risks and to speak their minds. And um, that was a big shift for me.
0: Wow. The, um, I'm fascinated by the, the sports analogy that you were talking about and, and um, something that I find myself now doing when I look at a, a resume or meet someone is ask them about their team experience. Yeah. And so it's interesting to think back on, on things like Title IX and the importance that it had not just on the sports world, but on the business world, on the world period.
1: There were no female sports in my high school. There was water ballet, pom-pom squad. I did track and field, but it was not organized through the school. Um, So, right. And I remember very vividly conversations um, early in my career in creative departments about the reason there weren't any female creative leaders is girls didn't know how to take a hit. And they cried, you know, when their work didn't get through, you know, and they hadn't learned those lessons on the field. Girls weren't tough enough because they hadn't played those team sports. So, you know, it did, for a while, it really held us back. Then I think all the business schools and the colleges went to excess and everything was teaming, 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 teaming. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's the most natural way to learn teaming. Right. But I do, I think to me, it's, it's about working with others. Mm-hmm. And even if somebody's experience of working with others was because they're from a disadvantaged family, but they were a line cook working with a group of illegal immigrants who were, uh, you know, waiting the tables and doing the dishes, that's learning to work with others. Right. 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 And I've interviewed and hired people like that.
0: Right. Um, I want to make sure we have um, a little bit of time to talk about your um, transition from, from leading accounts to sort of a conscious choice of what type of account you yeah. wanted to lead and what track you wanted your career to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that oftentimes, you know, you you're, whether you're in an agency or probably any business, you can see certain opportunities in front of you and you kind of only <coughs> know what you see as the options. Right. And you made a, a, a decision at a fork in the road where you said, this is what I want and how i wonder if you could just talk about what that what that tr- what that choice was and also um what the sort of self-awareness was about what you enjoyed about the business what you thought you were good at right. and how that influenced your decision to become a global account lead
1: yeah um, well, as I told you, I had gone to a liberal arts school, and I took a lot of international politics. And I had these three professors, Manu and Walla, Chung Doha, and Mulmer Pavoni, who were brilliant men. You'd be in a class of 18 to 20 people, and you'd be studying the rise and fall of socialism. And, um, you know, you'd be looking at economic collapse and what kinds of governmental f- systems can spring from that. And I found these men and their histories of the countries that they'd left and what they'd done fascinating. It really resonated with me. But, of course, when I went into advertising, people weren't thinking global. In those days, right, we were thinking about big national accounts. So I didn't really start thinking about a global role until I was asked to take an assignment. Um, As Leo Burnett started to expand globally and P&G started to expand um, and they said, would you like to run, move to London and work on this business? And then, unfortunately, I got pregnant. So, of course, you weren't going to send a pregnant gal uh, to London um, because she wasn't going to come back. So um, when I came to BBDO, I'd done a lot of global work at Kraft. My job was to study shifting food trends globally and identify which global trends would come to the U.S. So handheld foods, ultra-fray, um, goat cheese, things like that. And I was back studying cultures again, and the cultures of eating and economics, and that fascinated me. And um, when I came to PBDO, I, I ran new business for a while, and a lot of it was domestic new business, but I, st- I realized I really loved the challenge of learning new categories. So I could work on, you know, drugs, and I could work on alcohol, and I could work on spirits. Um, and I thought to myself, I like to learn. I love to keep learning about new industries, new sectors. But in Spirits, I started to learn about new markets. And then my role on Bear put me in contact with people in Switzerland and Germany. And I realized what I really love is learning about how those economies, their regulations, you know, how people approach illness, concepts of health and wellness um, impact things. And through that experience, I got to know these amazing BBDO people, you know, the Josie Pauls, the Danny Searles, you know, some of our really legendary people. And when I worked with those people, I was growing professionally. I was learning new ways of leading or coaching or listening. So for me, it's just been kind of a journey where um, I was always good, I think, at diagnosing somebody's problem regardless of what culture they were in. I was pretty good at getting into a CEO's office in Germany versus Guatemala, doing the homework so that I showed up dressed appropriately and with the appropriate brand of deference for a woman dealing with a male client in those places. And I started to get a reputation, I think, of somebody who, who was a good global citizen, who did my homework, who was respectful, who showed up. I, in turn, felt really blessed to have that opportunity. I really enjoyed that part of the business. Mm. So when I thought about general manager of an office versus general manager of building a global business, it was that side that really appealed to me. And it was a place where I felt there was a real need for people to think of it as developing a practice or a skill set. And there were very few of us. I mean, this was myself and St. John and Tilo and Matt Mildenhall. I mean, there were a handful of us trying to informally, through Andrew's coaching, come together and give each other's advice on what we were learning. Mm, mm.
0: You mentioned the the three professors yeah. from back in your school days. Yeah. What countries were they from?
1: Poland, Korea, and uh, India, mm. where I've spent a lot of my career dealing with clients in all three of them.
0: That's amazing. And, yeah. I, and I, um, I took a picture when I was in your office earlier yeah. of the poster you have yeah. on your wall. Yeah. And... This is obviously something that's a, a, you know, a real passion of yours. Yeah. But there's, there's this poster of world history. Right.
1: The is... rise and fall of civilizations and all the cultures that were powerful and and, you know, declined. And I think for me, watching the McKinsey's and the bames eight years ago, nine years ago, come in and sell brick this and forget that. And, you know, watching the rise of the former um communist countries into democratic communism and the eclipse of some of our, you know, Western superpowers. I mean, to me, this is all predictable. I mean, this mm. has happened time and time before. Mm. And knowing how to navigate uh, conversations with clients when they're in a market that's gaining influence and the global center's influence is, you know, waning.
0: That's fascinating. And- uh,
1: is something we've seen throughout history.
0: Um, and it comes back to your point about being a business leader, yeah. understanding the impact of of global politics and yeah. economics, and how those things affect the day to day of any given client in any given country. What is your media intake like? In other words, do you read newspapers from all over the world? How do you how do you track what's happening on on global business?
1: Um, I I was given a gift a few years ago. Um, I think it might have been Andrew, of a subscription to The Week. And through The Week, I started to identify certain global publications where I actually found the articles more helpful, you know, just the little blurbs that were presented. And so I started to subscribe via apps to those publications. I always go to the State Department website before I go to a country. When I was visiting, um, you know, Guatemala, Venezuela, when the economies were changing kind of what do I need to be aware of? What are they telling people that are coming in on business or elsewhere? And I love those state department websites because there's some really interesting stuff. Um, And then I, you know, when I'm in the countries, I always make a point of going in at least two days longer, going to the markets with the local sales team, Mm. getting in there, seeing what people are reading there, watching how people are consuming their own news. Um, And then I really rely on our local offices. Like, I, you know, what should I look at? What what should I read before I come in, before I'm going to be meeting with your client? You know, give me some headlines from the news recently. What's going on with this upcoming election in India? Is that going to be salient for this client? But if I don't know there's an upcoming election in India, and I don't know if it's the start of the disease season in October, and that's in conjunction with certain festivals, then I'm not going to be – persuasive to the client. Right. So right. I, I feel like I have to know what's going up with the upcoming elections, mm-hmm. what's going on in terms of whether climate change is affecting, for me, disease incidents of mosquito borne diseases. Um, you know, all of those kinds of things before I go into a market in a very timely way, like the last month or two, right. and what's coming in the next right. four months.
0: Right. So on, on the topic of kind of this, your global purview and yeah. and the way your your brain is constantly being stretched around the world literally to to be thinking about um, not just the issues of the client's business but also ours and and our teams and how you build the team. I'm I'm really curious to ask you about the difference between building a team when they're all co-located versus building a team who can be in 20, 50 different locations. Right. And what are the the challenges that you've seen in doing that? And are there any, um, I don't know, were there any aha moments for you or, or sort of big learnings on on what it's like to build a team that's, that's quite, um, you know, networked around the world as, as almost like a, 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 you know, it's a spider web around the world as opposed to everyone sort of sitting in one place?
1: Um, I would say that what I've learned is trust is earned. Um by making promises and keeping your promises. Um, when you ask people to join a global account um, and you commit to giving them an, a growth opportunity, um, don't be quick to cut their P&L to make another office's margin requirement. Keep your promises as often as you can. Um, I've also learned that you have to spend time in person with people. Um, Maybe only annually, but some of those conversations need to be had in the context of somebody's office, not just on the phone. And it's more challenging these days because we all want to believe that technology and meeting in Skype or whatever else does the job. But for me to understand really what kinds of cultural constrictions women in India still face and truly understand how this campaign that i'm launching with Josie and the team may be perceived by women it helps me to be in that office and see that all the women in the office with the exception of one or two actually leave at 4:30 every day because they're expected to go home and make sure dinner's ready for their husband you know if i if i don't build trust by being there to experience the culture of the office and know when i'm asking an account person or an account lead in that office to step up their level of service what some of the local cultural challenges are to that then it's problematic so one keep my promises as often as i can and if there's going to be pain going around financially make sure we're all sharing it and be able to say to people we're taking a hit too and to you know be respectful enough to connect with some of the people in the office as human beings as well as professionals and get into those markets um regardless of budget constraints, find a way to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the things for me, because I find I can then go two or three years without getting back to seeing Male in Argentina, right. or not getting back to see Camilla in Brazil, or not getting to see Z and Han in China. Right. But you've built that trust, you've got right. some equity. On the flip side, if you keep making withdrawals from that and you don't make any deposits, it's problematic. So I always look at it as a bank account right. where what have I invested for that team recently, either financially or emotionally?
0: Right. That's helpful because I imagine you've got dozens of offices that are connected and you literally couldn't get to every single one of them. No, but I have a year. team
1: and this is where team comes in. Mm-hmm. I have three direct reports in our global team here who are equally oriented. You know, they they have that attitude and they have deep deep. Daily conversations with their local counterparts in those markets, and and I think that's critical. I mean, I I couldn't do it all. The whole team has to have that mindset, right? Right. So,
0: um, I I just want to shift for a second because as we talk about the growth of your career, and you know, you mentioned having your first child. You have three children now, now young adults, and um, I wonder about how you, how you approached, how you thought about, and how you created structure around the idea of work-life balance. I know, you know, this is a topic that today people say, oh, there's no such thing as balance. You know, you have to integrate. And there's different ways to think about it. But as someone who built a career at a time when there weren't a lot of women, as you said, you you know, coming back from having children, how did you approach that? And how did you create structure around your personal life so that they could, yeah. you know, so that the, the, the travel and the work life didn't, didn't completely dominate your, your world.
1: Two things I think that are important here is what worked for me is not going to work for m- most people today. Because one of the things I've learned as a female leader in particular is that every three to five years, the cohort of employees changes and their values change. And what feels like personal and professional uh, satisfaction and success changes. Hmm. So expecting somebody um, you know 10 years after I went through what I went through um, in getting started in my career to want to make the same choices that I made or respect the choices that I made makes no sense. And conversely me expecting them to live up to my standards makes no sense. They have different options. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think what we have to try to do is be mindful of, man, we have cohorts of people you know, who came of age in this period, in this period, in this period, in this period in, this period in our group. And they all, as a cohort, may have slightly different perceptions. And we got to be keeping in touch with what that is because they're going to make different choices mm-hmm. about what feels like good balance and what feels like professional success based on that. Mm-hmm. And I saw that as a woman when I had one whole core, cohort of women five or six years after I started working decide to stay home with their kids and then another whole cohort just want to work part-time and then another cohort come back on full-time right and you kept seeing it switch and today men are doing some of the same things so you know step number one is they're not going to do it the way I did it um, nor should they um, step number two was I read a great interview with Madeline Albright and I was really torn I'd been offered Um, This global job by Andrew in 2005, and I had fairly young children at home, still in high school. And um, my husband and I had always agreed that family came first um, and that somebody needed to be home at night to have dinner. Um, But we also had always agreed that we could take turns doing that. My husband had been a very big success early on. Um, His career was changing I had the flexibility to do it. What I had to decide is, did I have the desire to do it? Um, And I read this quote by Madeline Albright, and she said, "I never could have planned the career that I had." Um, What I, what I, you know, did was I was the dean at an Ivy League school for women, and then I started to do research and publish on X while I had small children at night. And then that turned into an assignment for Ronald Reagan and coaching him as he ran for election. And then that turned into, and she said, if I'd I'd planned to get there, I never would have. But I was full on for every opportunity as it presented itself. And I looked for the way to do it at that time in a way that benefited both my personal and my professional interests and values. And so I've always tried to, I mean, I've always tried to have a vision of where I want to go, but I've always tried to say, as this opportunity arises, what's, how are we going to do this right now and do it really well? Hmm. Um, and I've also tried to be really mindful of it's changing. Right. Okay. So that worked for two or three years. My role needs to evolve. I need to step up and do something different. Let's evaluate how we're going to do that. Right. And we do it together. You so know, I'm blessed. a certain blessed.
0: amount of vision that you yep. can have about where this is going, and there's a certain amount of just the here and now what is the opportunity right, in front of me right
1: right i think yeah and i think you know really having that conversation about how am i going to do everything i want to do well right now and what am i willing to give up doing well mm-hmm. is a really important one to have
0: right and so you and your husband kind of had a had a a plan we and did. you were able to kind of um, build enough structure around it that you felt like okay if i'm going to be away doing something then right this is how this is right. how we're going to Going to and we had that.
1: this great rule, um, which was that since I was going to be traveling, I would get to be the fun, indulgent parent, and he would be the disciplined one. And that's never going to happen with my husband. So our kids call us Judge Judy and Mr. Fun. <laughs> I would be calling from God knows what country I was in and saying, have you done your homework? And have you done this? And, you know, are you checking this off your mix? And have you done your college application? And my husband would be saying, let's go out for dinner, you know, right. so... To some extent, you can't get mad about that. I mean, this is a, a function, but I also meant that I didn't have to relax the standards, right? right. <laughs> like, so
0: that's great. Yeah, yeah. The um, it's, <laughs> I think um, my wife and I went through a similar thing to what you're describing, where she she's not in advertising, but yeah. she had a a global, a globally oriented job, traveled yeah. a lot, and her approach was to say, "I'm going to create." moments for the kids so that they don't dread me leaving they look forward to some degree to me going on a trip and so she would leave them little treasure hunts and
1: I did the same things Jim that's very funny because having met your wife I can see it or I would I always I mean to me they weren't guilt gifts my children have amazing things that I brought back from China or that I brought back and so my children are all very interested in the world you know and we would come back and every year I brought back holiday ornaments from the country that we could use to celebrate, you know. So, no, I did try to make it memorable experiences so that they didn't remember all the times I was gone. They remembered what they they learned from my coming back.
0: Right. And that you were a global citizen and that you and that.
1: And I've had many BBDOers from other markets in my home with my family. And I've had several of them with my family for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And my kids have loved that, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you have a colleague come up from Mexico. Right to visit her child who's in prep school and you bring the prep school kid and his friend and right. your, your colleague out to the family farm for Thanksgiving. My kids loved that. Right. They thought that was the best thing in the world. Yeah,
0: that's so, so similar. Yeah. Um, that's that's uh, a, an amazing uh, coincidence yeah. of how similar you and, uh, and my wife managed a similar challenge. Yeah. Um, I wonder, just thinking about leadership skills and leadership techniques, if there's anything that you feel like you learned from uh, terrific leaders who you saw operating, whether that was you know in the agency or in client environments, or on the flip side, uh, maybe unnamed leaders who you didn't think were yeah. were great at it, were there tips or thing or tricks that you know you sort of picked up or or techniques that you saw and you know had moments of like okay. I'm one hundred percent clear I am not going to do it that way, yeah. or I am going to do it this way.
1: Um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got was also a kind of painful piece of advice. Um, but I'm so grateful to this day for it because, as I said, early out of my career I was pretty detail oriented, know the business, the analytic, um, you know my if my ying, and I you know, I think about this a lot, if my Ying was I'm driven. Um, I'm professional, I'm always pushing forward, I'm a perfectionist, the yang is, I can be exhausting, I can be demanding, you know, people feel judged, Um, so I you know, I became aware pretty early in my career that my strengths also were my weaknesses, and I needed to be mindful of that, and there was one experience with Andrew where I ran a new business pitch for him that was not successful right after he came to North America, And it was for Boeing, which was a complex business with satellite launch systems and missile defense systems in seven countries. And then 911 happened in the middle of it. Mm. And so they didn't want to change their business or move their agency. But Andrew called me and said, when you're in New York next visiting your client, buyer, um, swing by. And he just gave me some very casual feedback on what I'd done well And he may not even remember this. At one point, he said to me, you know, you know more about your client's business. You know it backwards. You know it forwards. Um, What you learned about those systems that was great. But, Anne, if you want to come to this next level, if you want to take this global job that we're talking about, you need to shift from knowing everything about everything and being in control to being an agent of inspiration. Hmm.
0: And how, how did you then kind of digest that and then begin to try to do it?
1: Well, I will also tell you, he had run a video about a year before when he came that showed Doris Day and Rock Hudson in the advertising business. Doris Day was, they were in the advertising business and competing before they fell in love, and um, Rock Hudson had his feet up on the desk and was sending liquor and was this amazingly fun guy, and Doris Day was running around with checklists and calculators, and then he put up Ozzy's face and mine. And I was a little sad, right? Because I realized that is me. I'm pretty driven, pretty on task. Mm -hmm. So then this become an agent of inspiration was to me, I am naturally good at all of those things. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't have to wholly define me. Mm. And um, I thought about the most inspirational people that I knew. And there was a caring nature and a sense of mission that I wasn't bringing to the businesses that I was on a sense of team a sense of what are we trying to achieve that isn't just keeping the business or doing xyz and i realized i needed i needed to lean into that i'd always wanted it myself in the teams that i'd been in in the agency world mm-hmm. and hadn't really had it so i was going to try to create it for mm-hmm. the team and that's been something i've worked to do and it's always you're always working at it and my team around me works at it i mean we really kind of have a shared vision for developing our people around the globe, developing right. our people here, right, um, and what we're trying to achieve on SEJ for the network, right, and how we want to future-proof our talent, right, given the changes in the industry, right. so that to me is what I learned: is be more than the job description, lead in more lead through a sense of shared vision or purpose, right, um, and don't rely so heavily on the things that you're naturally good at. Right, that you appear to be kind of one-dimensional right. and you're not aware of the dark side of those things.
0: Well, there's two huge takeaways for me in that. Um, the first is around self-awareness, as you said, and that for everyone, to some degree, your, your strengths shadow your weaknesses, right? They're, direct, they're directly... Directly balancing. correlated, right? And for most people, if you made a list of your three greatest strengths you can quickly fill in the blank right. on what the other side right. of that is oftentimes. Um, but the other one is around the importance of honest feedback, no matter what stage of your career you're
1: in. It's such a gift.
0: And um, and especially in, in today's world where, you know, there's talk about uh, companies in Silicon Valley that are now doing away with reviews, for example, because, you know, they're saying people don't want to wait six months or a year for feedback. Right. They want feedback on the spot. They right. want feedback that day. How do you now implement feedback with your team or with, um, you know, not necessarily your direct reports, but maybe or maybe even people who are who are who are, um, you know, just getting started in their career? Yep. And how do you think about feedback differently now that it's been so impactful in your career?
1: Right. Well, I, I definitely believe feedback is a gift. Um In terms of development planning, we take it really seriously with our group. And what I try to do with people that I think are long-term performers at BBDO is to call them in. My role in the process is to say, where do you see yourself going? Do you see yourself continuing to evolve in account management into bigger accounts or different accounts? Does global interest you? Is some kind of a lateral Move in the agency something that you might want to consider. Let's talk about why that is and what people always say to me afterwards is, "My God, Aunt, I didn't know there was anything other than from assistant account executive to account executive." So what I try to do is help people develop a path or a vision for themselves, at least. Um, mm-hmm. I and then when I give them feedback, I try because of my seniority, I try to focus in on giving them positive feedback in the things that they're doing that are getting them in that direction. Because I think negative feedback coming from me, even as constructively coached could be, you know, if you're 25 years old, I, I I mean, I think that might be a little bit intimidating, but our team tries to make sure that we're Mm -hmm. giving timely feedback on the flip side. I still think it's critically important to seek feedback. And, you know, at our level, we don't get it that often and not in as formal a way But I knew I was having a problem with a client last year, and it it doesn't happen to me very often, but a pretty senior client, and I couldn't get to the bottom of it. He wouldn't take my calls, he wasn't meeting me, so I asked Andrew to call him. Now, you know, I thought about this. He's probably gonna hear something I'm not gonna like, but I thought, first of all, the client's gonna think, holy crap, you know, the CEO of the agency called me because he was interested in getting my opinion, and, and I knew that would appeal to this guy, And two, I knew that Andrew would get to the bottom of it. And uh, guess what? It was on my old brief of, you know, (laughs) a little too domineering and a little too (laughs) perfection-oriented. So same theme (laughs) reared its ugly hand. I have to get a more fun brief. I think (laughs) somebody (laughs) needs to write a more fun brief. But, you know, I really appreciated it. And I didn't know how to get the feedback. I could not get this guy to talk to me. Right. And his boss is my dated my my most serious client, and I knew if I went to her, she'd kick his ass, mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. only going to make it worse. Right. So right. I had to right. find another way.
0: Right. Um, well, on the on the um, on the theme of of the work, and obviously our agency has been built on the work and the people. Um, is there work in your career that you look back on and think like when you know when you look back, it's like your greatest hits? Is there work that you that you just are so proud of having been a part of that um, that you'll always think you know can we make this next one as good as that was?
1: So, we were at a global meeting in Shanghai. It was a Shanghai or Turkey, but Andrew introduced this team from India that had opened their agency in a car, and my client Ag e. Buyer had never done any business in in India. Um, but I decided right then that that purpose-driven work was something. I'd been working in healthcare, diabetes care, pharma, and, you know, functional. I mean, even when we tried to elevate it, right, it, there was a certain approach, but this notion of purpose-led work and how evocative that could be, particularly in a country where you couldn't afford to launch a TV campaign, right, really impressed me. So, I found an opportunity to give the BBDO India team a little bit of business on buyer. It was a terrible assignment. They were doing me more of a favor, but that it was some revenue for them. And then when I was running J&J, um, I was able to get them the Johnson's Baby business in India. And um, But I never really – I went to the workout with Josie and Danny and, and the team there. Um, but when Ann Mukherjee, our current chief commercial officer of SEJ, an Indian woman, very proud Indian woman – took her job and she knew Josie and she'd seen share the load. I knew I had an opportunity and she wanted to do a movement. And what I didn't know is what do we need to do a movement about? I mean, we're in pest control. Our brand positioning is it's good to be tough and it's rooted in the insight that in most markets around the world, other than the U S mosquito borne diseases are life threatening, huge incidents of child mortality. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was this whole push towards natural and lighter formulas and things. But the reality is most of them are efficacious. And so in this permissive world where everybody wants to be their kid's friend and they want to indulge them and you're choosing more natural products, mm-hmm. this notion of sometimes it's really good to be tough as a woman and as a parent, as a mother, because you're being tough because you want to ensure your child's future was the idea that Danny and Josie and our team came up with, first of all. When we went into India, how did we pivot to the Indian culture? Because being tough in China means very negative things. You're going to be a tiger mom. You don't want to do that. When you go to India, women are in a very patriarchal society. And toughness as a woman, you're expected to be the goddess and all-knowing, but the man is the tough one. And if anything goes wrong, you get blamed, but you don't get a lot of the credit. And so we realized that there was this cultural shaming thing going on in India where um, a lot of young men were getting into trouble legally. You you remember some of the incidents in India of gang rape and things because there was a very permissive culture beginning to happen in India. And mothers who tried to reprimand their boy children, not their girl children, their boy children, um, and who lived in extended families were shunned, bullied, um, reversed— in their own homes. And it, it was it's pretty widespread. I mean, a lot of people live in extended families in India. I had no idea. And so we had this idea of encouraging the culture in India to stand by tough moms who are trying to make better parenting choices. And Josie came up with this incredible film about a woman in an extended family in a very authentic way who is being shamed and his insight was, to fight patriarchy, you need to use the patriarch. Mm-hmm. To fight fire, you need to use fire. Mm-hmm. And so the patriarch was the hero of the film, because he acknowledged that what this mother had done was correct. And he, he told the rest of the family that they needed to stand behind her, because he was raising a good human being for the future. And we knew we were going to get shamed by white Western women of privilege, who'd go, oh, how dare you make the man the star of this? Women need to be self-empowered as me as a you know a western woman myself i was really worried about this but i we knew it was right we did a little research and so we launched standby tough moms it was so compelling men and women sharing it because it made them remember just how important the role of a mother who loves you enough to do the tough things are mm. our brand all out which is already a beloved brand our brand equity our brand trust scores went up dramatically and then Josie and I had the privilege of going to Cannes and presenting to the Glass Lion jury together, where most of the jurors were white Western women who had a mat on that the hero or the you know, that we had used patriarchy to, you know, or a patriarch to fight patriarchy. But we, we came out with a bronze because the three Asian women and Middle Eastern women in the audience said, they're right. This is my life. So I'm proud of that because as a feminist and as somebody who's achieved a lot, it reminded me that in the rest of the world, it won't happen on my terms or my way. And we created a campaign that addressed the client's business problem, built the brand equity, but also really spoke to people and touched their hearts and started a movement of people in the family saying good job to mothers, which wasn't happening. So that's the work. and. And seeing Josie on that on that uh, platform talking to the jurors about his work, you know, I thought to myself, this is this is an opportunity to work with really a wonderful master and a leader in our industry. So that was gratifying
0: too. I love I love that story, Anne, and um, everything about it from the beginning of you know you making an investment in those relationships around the world and building over time to seeing an opportunity where you could not just. Help your client and drive their business, but also create something good in the world. Yeah, and that's um, and do it with someone who I personally uh, <laughs> admire immensely. With Josie, yeah. uh, just just a, a wonderful a wonderful story. So, um, it's a perfect conclusion to this conversation. Thank you so much for your time and your passion and um, and all your wisdom, and for sharing it with uh, with our team back in San Francisco and, and anyone else who, who listens in.
1: So I have to say this, and I, I want you to open your heart to hear this. There are a lot of us very grateful you've done this project.
0: Mm. Oh, you're very kind. I'm, yeah. um, so. I'm thrilled um, that it's, that it's been picked up beyond, you know, what I thought it would be was just something that our team in San Francisco could learn from, but it, it's, it's now been downloaded i think in 37
1: countries which shocks me it's amazing but thank you so much yeah. for your for your kind words i really appreciate it